John chapter 12. Uh, we're stepping out of Ephesians, as you guys might anticipate, for Palm Sunday and Easter next week. We'll be back there soon finishing things up. We're close. John chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another that you are gaining nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Yes. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, just reveal your truth. Here's a story that we're familiar with, but I wasn't in a lot of ways. And so, Lord, once again, Holy Spirit, lift up King Jesus. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Prince of peace. Over every situation, over, over everything in our lives right now, Lord. Lord, bless this time in, in your name. Amen. A pastor I used to work with, Mark Thompson, he told a true story of when he was going to a job interview for a nonprofit, somebody who doesn't make a profit, but is there and they exist to help other people. On his way to the job, he had parked, found a parking spot, and he parked along a park. And in this park, he noticed that there was smoke and the smoke drew his attention. And then he noticed that there was a man in this park, a homeless man on fire. And his friend tried to put, they're both drunk. One of them had caught on fire getting too close to the barbecue or whatever they were cooking and caught his clothes. And then someone, his friend tried to pour liquor on him to put it out and made it worse. And so he looks around and people are watching it, but nobody's doing anything. And this guy's burning and his friend is too drunk to figure out what to do. And so Mark goes over in a suit, he's going to a job interview, and he takes his jacket off and he begins to put this guy out, this guy who's on fire with his suit jacket, and lays on him and covers him and puts the fire out and calls, calls 911 and they come and take him away to treat his burns and stuff like that. It's time to get to his interview, he doesn't time to go home. And so he goes into the interview, he puts his suit back on, and it smells like alcohol and smoke and fire, and it looks terrible. And uh, 
And it's the first thing the interview says is, what in the world is that smell? And, uh, and he tells her the story. They said, sorry, I didn't have time to go home. And she looks at him and stops the interview. And she said, you should have gone home and changed. And that was the takeaway. And he was like, not sure I want to work for a nonprofit. He was like, not in the business of rescuing people. It's such a illustration of the two kingdoms. You've got one kingdom that's just lost. That's like the two guys who are like trying to survive and they're on fire. You've got people looking around and just it's become a spectacle to them. At least it's not me. Maybe somebody will help them. Hopefully somebody helps them. So maybe somebody will do something. And then you have those who look like they've got it together who are the ones who have been set up in organization to be help, again, they look and they look down on the situation and say, no, that doesn't fit our type. That's beneath us. You should have done something that you should have presented yourself in a better way than actually rescuing somebody from burning to death. I just never got over that story of... Here he is, and he's putting this out. He's getting the smell on him. He's going low. He's on the ground with this guy, getting the smell of it on him and getting the dirt and the mud and rescuing this person and, and then being told, that's not the business we're in. But that is the business we're in. That is the business we're in. The cross is something incredible. We're going to talk about symbols in a second. But the cross is something that is universal to Christianity now. It's something we wear on a cross, we get an earring, we get a tattoo, and it means something to us. We put it on our car to identify who we are. We, when we used to have yellow pages and you were a contractor, you'd put a cross or an ictus or something. It was this, it's the symbol of, hey, I'm a Christian kind of a thing. But the cross wasn't adopted by the Christian church until after they had outlawed crucifixion because it was such a horrific symbol. It was so offensive, the cross, the early church didn't even use it as a symbol until after it was outlawed. It was so gruesome. We get our word excruciating from that idea of crucifixion. It was obscene. It was horrific. It was terrible. It was, it was beneath the common man. Crucifixion was so insane that if a woman, which was rare, was ever crucified, she was crucified facing the cross because they would not want to look on a woman's face in that much agony and pain. And so they would face her to the wood, to the beam, and they would crucify her so they wouldn't have to look upon it. The cross was offensive. It was terrible. It was a stumbling block. And to say that our Savior our Lord went to the cross. That was a stumbling block in those first couple centuries for people hearing about the gospel. So I want, I want to talk about that because I think it's very interesting that the people hold palm branches and they wave palm branches as Jesus is coming in. And I want to talk about what that symbol is and a different kind of symbol for the kingdom that we're actually a part of. Very briefly, and I'm trying to be more brief, having to edit these sermons. <laughs> Holy moly. Plus, I've really thought, and I really want to emphasize that as we're all together, 
we're all participating in the Lord's Supper together. I really want that to be the centerpiece because someone once said, they said, how was the sermon? I was like, it was okay, but Jesus showed up at the table. He's always good at the table. And, And I want to look at the setting, the symbols, and the scripture, the setting. So Jesus is proclaiming in the boldest and clearest way that he is the Messiah King that Israel has been looking for. Up to that point, it had been called veiled disclosure, right? You remember when he's saving? I always got thrown off when I heard the story of Jesus when he'd do a miracle and he'd say, don't tell anybody. And you're like, why does he say that? That's so weird. It doesn't make sense. Jesus is bringing the kingdom in such a visible way through these miracles. Jairus' daughter, remember, she's raised from the dead. He reaches down into the jaws of death and he pulls her up from the grave and she's back to life. Every dead cell in her body, the heart that had stopped working, the blood that had begun to coagulate, everything reversed, the curse of death reversed as he whispered into her ear, wake up, little darling. And then he commands them and it says, but don't tell anybody because this is going to set off a chain of events that we can't come back from. This is going to be the powder keg that if people find out they're going to grab me and they want to force me to be king or the religious leaders are going to come against it like we see here. But now in the triumphal entry, his face is set to Jerusalem. He knows what the father has given him to do. And now he's declaring in the boldest possible terms, no longer veiled, that he is the king that they've been expecting. That this is the day that the Lord has made. Him riding in on a donkey was the day foretold about. This is the day that God has made. This is the day to be rejoice and to be glad in it. Because the king has come. The king has come and the king is making himself known. So in the most explicit terms, Jesus is setting the powder keg into motion. And it happens. We'll see in this next week. It's called Holy Week. And I want us to be in scripture this week because it's been called the most important week (laughs) in history. From Sunday, Palm Sunday, to Monday, to Tuesday, to Wednesday, to Thursday, to Good Friday, right? And then Silent Saturday, it's called, and then Glorious Sunday, Easter, Resurrection, where death is defeated, where like the curse is reversed, where Satan, sin, and death have been thrown down. This is it. This is, we want to enter into that participation and that longing and that remembering of what that church and that early church went through and what this week represents. But so things are set in motion He's not telling anybody anymore. Don't tell him what has happened, but that this is one of the most provocative things. And when you understand the setting and the symbols that he uses, we understand exactly what he was saying. Now, Judah and Israel are under the control of Rome. We know that, right? We've read the Gospels. They're not free. They're not independent. They're not their own nation. They pay taxes to Rome. They're They're occupied by Rome. They're forced to do Rome's bidding. They don't have a king. They can't decide the laws for themselves. They are oppressed by Rome. And there's an uneasy peace that they try to maintain 
through the years with the different rulers, and the religious leaders are always trying to maintain that peace and to keep power. But Judea is under Jerusalem's, Israel's under the control of the Romans. One of the symbols of that rule was the Antonio Fortress that was built just after 63 BC. It was built north of the temple, and one of the towers of the fortress was higher than the temple courts so that even as you were worshiping as a Jew, you'd always look and you would see Rome watching. You were never free, not even in your temple. Rome was watching. They were watching every move you did. It was Big Brother. They were watching everything you did. You know, they were scrutinizing everything. And you weren't free even to worship in your temple. They were not independent. The prefect was Pontius Pilate. There was some tension between them. The face of He was the face of Rome and Judea. He was the one to collect taxes and to put down any rebellions, and he did so at times violently. And that was Rome's way, was if you were brutal and violent, then perhaps people wouldn't do it. That's why they introduced crucifixion. The Romans introduced crucifixion. It was such a horrific way to die. It took days, a lot of the time, to die. And in the most excruciating way, they would say, this will keep down people from rebelling. If this is what you get for rebellion, if it's not just going to jail for a couple years, if it's not just paying a fine, if it's this end, then it will stop that. But people are funny and people will rebel against oppression. Because it's in us that we were created to be free. Like, you see that all over the world especially as we're connected by the internet, people who live in oppressive regimes and they're throwing off these symbols of oppression and they're losing their lives just for the simplicity of wanting to learn in a school. They're losing their lives, they're protesting because they, there's something innate as an image bearer of God to be free and not to be under that oppression. And so the Jews have this expectation of independence. And they've tied that expectation of independence to the Messiah, that messianic figure who they thought would come and set them free from Rome, from the oppressor. Now, there are three groups of Jews, and that's, of course, it's way more complicated than that, and that's a character in a summary. But there were those on the left, and they got along with the Romans. They were more friendly. They tried to get along. They said, this is the way that we move forward. We move forward in this uneasy peace. They were the Hellenists. They were the ones who even adopted Roman ways into their lives. And then you had the middle of the road where they could go either way. Uh, But then you had the zealots on the right. And the zealots were like, we will lose our lives. We will spend ourselves to overthrow this impression, even if we're outnumbered. And that's literally what happens in 70 AD. It's the zealots that rise up against Rome and Rome puts it down. The destruction of the temple happens and the the Jews are spread throughout the world after that event of being nearly wiped out. And so there's these three groups, but every group, even the ones on the left, especially the ones on the right and the ones in the middle have this messianic expectation. That someone's going to come one day and someone's going to liberate them. That there'll be another Moses 
who walks up into Pharaoh's court and says, let my people go. And the stories told to the kids of the rod turning into a snake, the Nile turning into blood, the locusts and the frogs and the darkness. And as they're celebrating now, Passover, where the angel of the Lord comes into Israel and Egypt. And the firstborn of every family that's not covered by the blood of the lamb dies that. And that is the final thing to allow Moses to release. So there's this expectation as Passover is taking place. There's this miracle worker. There's this one who prepared the way, John, who's saying, he's the one we've been looking for. I'm not even worthy to unloosen his sandals. Who, when he baptizes them, there's a voice from heaven who says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The spirit descending like a dove onto him. John saying to the crowd, I must decrease so that he may increase. Go follow him. So this expectation, and then all of a sudden there's this miracle worker. And he's different than anybody's ever imagined. Because what's his first miracle but to, at a wedding, make an okay party into a great party by turning water into wine? But then lepers who ask to be healed are set free. Their skin made like the flesh of a baby. A mourning widow who has no future prospects for herself and can only follow through and see the burial of her son. Jesus interrupts a funeral and gives the son back to his mom. Telling us that one day, like that's what he's going to do. We'll all have funerals, but he's going to come and he's going to interrupt them at some point. And he's going to give us back to our love to one another. So Jesus comes onto the scene and there's none like him. He speaks with this authority and this power, but he's so different because he's, the religious leaders don't want anything to do with him. He eats on the Sabbath. He tells his disciples to eat on the Sabbath. We can't do that, they thought. And he says stuff like, well, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I wrote the law. I'm the one who decides. So Jesus comes and he lays out this kingdom that's so different. They can't, people can't wrap their minds around. One of the most fascinating things when you read the gospels is how much the disciples who are with Jesus for three years are like, Oh, that's so brilliant. Amazing, Jesus. Hey, can we have a word with you? What in the world are you talking about? It's so otherworldly, this upside down kingdom that's not about revenge and retaliation, but loving your enemies and asking God's blessing on them. That's motivated and the foundation for it is forgiveness and mercy and justice. So strange. So there's this expectation, but people are like, I'm not sure this is the one. I'm not sure this is the guy. So there's this expectation. There's these groups of people. Passover's about to happen. It's Passover week. You can just feel it in the air. You can feel the electricity. You can feel the tension. 
I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where things are tense and something falls off a counter or something and everybody jumps. That's what it's like. It's electric. And then he gives us these symbols, these powerful symbols. Symbols are a powerful thing, especially for groups of people. There are non-powerful symbols like riding in an outhouse at work and marking your territory. Joe was here. Not a powerful symbol. I don't know. I can't comprehend. Sometimes I take pictures of outhouse graffiti because I'm just like, somebody needs to catalog this. Who writes this? And I always, I'm like, maybe it's him. I'm like, does he write this? It's so random, the stuff. Oh, graffiti, marking your territory, stuff like that. There's these, there's these symbols that like we're drawn to, to unite us. And some of them are powerful to people, some aren't. But then you take something like a national flag and you think of something like how uniting that is to a country, to a group of citizens, what it means and how uniting it is to see that thing. You've got that famous picture in World War II on Iwo Jima where the flag, the soldiers are and whether it was staged or whatever, but it's, there's something to that picture where they're battling through mud, dirt, bullets, hail, and hell, but they're getting the flag up. Like it's that symbol, we're all going to run, we're all going to unite to this. Why do I bring that up? Because what's interesting is that the palm frond was a symbol that the Jewish people had for independence, but it was not tied to the Passover feast. The palm fronds were actually used in a feast during the fall. So it's weird, unless we dig into the history a little bit. During the Maccabean Rebellion, that's when, you know, the Bible goes silent, our Old Testament. This is in the Apocrypha, but it's still history. It's a story about a rebellion that happened against oppression, where a group of Jews, a, a priest and his four sons, rebelled against the structure of evil, the structure of oppression, and they actually, through fighting, through violence, through overflow, brought peace to the land of Israel for about 100 years, 80 to 100 years. So, here's where that idea comes from. A priest by the name of Matthias, he and his four sons leading a war that led for about 100 years of freedom and independence from the rulers, the oppressors of their day, 140 BC, one of those four brothers by the name of Simon held out when the enemy was attacking. He and this small group of people rebelled. It's an amazing story of, I don't know why they haven't made it into a movie of, it's kind of like the whole 300. It's this, the few against the many and them holding out and winning through just sheer resilience, through the sheer God working. In 140 BC, the Simon held out. When Simon entered now freed Jerusalem as he rode in as a champion, as one who had won the victory and had won the battle, the Jews entered it and welcomed him in to their new freely set free Jerusalem with praise and palm branches. So they held palm branches and they praised God for the independence that the oppressor had been overthrown. We see that this actually, this image of the palm branch actually stuck with the Jewish people because you jump ahead and fast forward a few decades 
And in that great Jewish revolt that I mentioned briefly from 66 AD to 70 AD, when the temple finally fell, when they actually lost, there was a period of time in those four years where the religious leaders minted coins that they would use as money during that time. It was a fraction of a shekel, and the symbol on the shekel was a palm branch. And so it was this universal symbol that they had this expectation that we will overthrow our oppressor. It was like waving a national flag. So it's interesting because you have, okay, the Simon, Matthias' son and the Maccabean rebellion, him winning, them welcoming him in. And then you have that expectation after Jesus that still waving the palm branches that we still need to be set free. So you can get the mind of the people. So they're waving palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna. They have this messianic expectation, but their expectation is that God is providing another Maccabees, another Simon, to overthrow violently the Roman oppressors. And so there's that expectation. He's here. He's going to ride in and he's going to go to town. He's going to destroy. He's going to all his miracles thus far have been helping people, even like Roman centurions. What's that about? We won't talk about that one. But now maybe he'll unleash Elijah of old or Elisha of old calling fire down to consume the enemy. Right. And even Jesus's disciples said, Jesus, Call fire down on him. You're a greater prophet than them. Burn him up. They talked bad about us. Just call down fire from him. And Jesus is communicating, like, I have a totally different plan and a totally different kingdom. The fire is going to come. James and John, you sons of thunder. Oh, the fire's coming. But it's going to fall on me. to fall on me so that any can come. Messianic expectation, the weaving of the palm fronds. Palm branches weren't associated with Passover, and this is Passover week, but the fall festival. Jesus is riding into a city full of people, and many of these people would be fired up for independence, a desire to break free from domination. Jesus' fame is spreading because of the raising of Lazarus, which we see. The crowd is there because they heard about the sign, Lazarus has been risen from the dead. It says in our text, like, hey, we're here. This guy raised the dead. This is the one. Okay, finally, here we are. Let's wave the palm branches. Let's get free. The donkey. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32, King David is old, and King David's going to decide who's going to take over ruling. And he says Solomon's going to rule. Solomon's going to be the one to take over the throne of David. He's going to be the son of David that rules. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benihai the son of Jehoiada, and they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. 
then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. And so not only is it, as we'll get into, is it a humble way to come in as king, but it also was the kingly way to come in as a king. You remember that Jesus is the promised son of David, that he's the one who's going to sit on the throne and rule forever. You remember when David says to, he says, I want to build the Lord a house, right? And then, and then God tells him through the prophet, I'm going to build you a house and I'm going to establish your throne forever. So one of the reasons that the Jewish people held their genealogies up so much that, and kept such track of them is because they believed that in the line of David, there would be one who comes to sit on the throne again. And so there was this expectation not only of a Messiah who would overthrow the Roman oppressors, but that there would be a king to come and rule in a way in which David did. And David failed at it greatly. So there's this hope that maybe one day we'll get a king that doesn't fail. Because Solomon becomes king and Solomon and his sons the nation of Israel split. And then you guys read 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. It's, an, it's amazing, but it's a hard read because you're like, and this king did what was evil inside of the Lord. And this king did what was evil inside. Of, and you're like, wow. And then all of a sudden, it's like being underwater and holding your breath and then coming up for a breath. It says, and this king did what was right in the sight of the Lord. You're like, yes, we're on track. We're Let's go. And then usually he like ruins it at the end of his life or something. The King Uzziah, who's like, you can go in the temple and uh, gets leprosy. And so over and over, you see the failure of bad kings. But really what the Old Testament tells us is of the failure of even the good kings. That there was a longing and an expectation that a good king would come one day. And that this good king would sit on the throne of David forever. And that he would rule and he would reign in righteousness. And that he wouldn't be the one who counts the people because of pride. He wouldn't be the one who looks at Bathsheba with lust and murders one of his confidant and fellow soldiers. Like he would rule and reign in righteousness. So there. People know because they know the story of the Bible that when Jesus rolls in on a donkey, what he's saying, that he's coming in to Jerusalem as the king, as the son of David. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's where it says that God will establish a seed, that he'll establish a house for David forever. Jesus riding upon the donkey was like riding upon David's throne. The scripture, Psalm 118, that was read so beautifully this morning, from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, these songs would be sung during the feast of Passover, during these, this festival week. In Psalm 118, you have that amazing verse there that says, Save us, Lord, Hoshana. Literally, Jesus' name is Save Now. That's what his name means. And so, they're literally saying, be true to your name, save now, like Hosanna, like save now is what they are crying out for. And what a beautiful thing is they have no idea even what they're asking for.
but he's answering their prayer. Save now. Such limited understanding. They had this like narrow band of here's our problem. Rescue us. Make this problem better. Save us now. We're in a dire situation. The boot is on our neck. Save now. Not next week. Not two weeks from now. Not next year. Not some next generation. Now's the time to save. And Jesus is answering that prayer. It's so amazing. You go back to the birth narrative. You shall call his name Jesus. Right? For he shall save his people from sin. So they're calling out. Jesus is a direct answer to that prayer. There's a lot of application here that we can talk about maybe in a minute, but yeah, let's talk about it in a minute. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. So this is what John recognized as the fulfillment of Jesus coming in, riding on a donkey. Let me read that again. Because this is just as much for us as it was for them. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, not compromised. Not a bad king. Not a moderate king. Not an okay king. Righteous. And having salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nation. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What a beautiful scripture. And here it is in front of them. They know that scripture. That would, John, that's what he thinks about. Actually, John's like, actually, we, after he was glorified, we like put this together. I love it. They're so honest. Huh? Here, John's looking back on this. And he, oh, he's doing something like that. Oh, he's putting away his war book and the war horse because he's coming to bring peace. He's coming with salvation. He's coming to establish a rule and a reign that extends to the far reaches of this earth and impacts every single molecule of creation. This week isn't just about fire insurance or, yeah, heaven and hell in the future. This week is about God reversing the curse through the person of Jesus by becoming the curse. 
He's undoing everything broken, everything wrong, everything crooked. He is the guarantee of it. How? What's the guarantee? That he rose from the grave. The guarantee that the curse is reversed. And then he gives us the spirit to come inside the church. And he begins to heal relationships where we would be natural enemies. We wouldn't get along. Different the three groups. We've got 50 groups in America. It's complicated. Look at all the division and all the separation and the tension that's in the room. And Jesus comes in and he says, guess what? That person who used you and stabbed you in the back has been covered by my blood and is now your blood brought brother. I don't either. It's great. That's what my daughter said. She said, it was so great. We were talking and, and, and she said, I don't understand. You mean God wants me to love somebody that has hurt me? And I said, yeah. And I said, it's hard. And she said, I can do it. And I said, perfect. Because if you could, you wouldn't need Jesus right. to rescue you. And this would be another religion and there wouldn't be anything supernatural about it. Loving people in the way God has called us to you takes literally the spirit of God yes. coming into our lives and making much of Jesus in our hearts so that that's all that matters. And then he moves through us. I wonder, like, I don't want to limit our vision for what God can do. I'm not saying we're going to go split the delta in two and walk over. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm talking about there's a lot, of, a lot of nonprofits doing good in this city, and we can join them and we should join them. But I don't want to lose sight of that we belong to a supernatural movement of the Spirit of God in this city that raises the dead, cold hearts that are reborn and rebirth, Jeff's at work, who the Spirit of God awakens them, brothers who are baptized and come to Christ like in the most unexpected time and ways. That is what we operate in. That is the environment that we can't just, I don't know, lose sight of. That God has commissioned us and called us to go and to preach and to unleash the lion of the gospel of grace. So much of the time we're trying to be convincing. We're trying to be cunning. We, do, we feel like we're not equipped enough. Like we don't know enough. The religious leaders, after they interviewed the disciples, they said, man, one thing we know, they're not very smart. They're fishermen. They don't know much. But they've been with Jesus. And there's a power there that we cannot comprehend and we cannot diminish. These are turning the world upside down. Through enemy love, through because I was God's enemy. Through a forgiveness that's otherworldly. You can work for 20 years with a therapist, and we should, because that is a God-given gift to have people in our lives to work. But we can work for 20 years and having a warm feeling towards somebody who's wronged us 
or you can have the resurrected Christ indwelling you who gives you a vision of your sinfulness and your lostness that you see the debt that you owed. And so you're not throwing your fellow saint in prison because of 20 bucks when you owed an infinite amount, you go, the grace I've been shown, how could I not give grace? This is supernatural, resurrected, Jesus kind of like Easter stuff that we got to be operating in. This is the environment. This is the atmosphere, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Because man, that's how we walk through this broken world as we experience the brokenness that of this world. So much of the treasure that God is, is revealed and that we do not leave him. We do not forsake him because he'll never leave or forsake us, but that he's our truly true treasure, that he's the pearl in the field, that we do anything to get him and that there's no cost he couldn't call us to. Like this is life and more abundantly, not having a better marriage. Great. That's a byproduct not having this habit taken care of. This is the resurrected life that he's calling us to, to walk with the living God, the uncaused cause, the infinite one who says, I want you to be my home. I'm going to indwell you myself. I want to make this church my body. I want to be the head, but I'm going to make the church the body. Like crazy stuff. The kings come. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he's coming again. But the King has come. There are some in our movement and they're brothers and sisters and we'll be worshiping in heaven. But think that more people will come to Jesus if we make him popular or digestible or appealing or... He's always going to be, because he's an authority, because he's a king, he's always going to threaten other people's authority. He's always going to threaten other power structures with his power structure. I was talking to one of my kids and just saying, that's what it all comes down to. Literally, it comes down to crown him or crucify him. It comes down to, we don't like an authority over us. We want to be the masters of our own fate. We want to be the captains of our own fate. Even when we get, when, okay, let me just make it about me. When I got into Christianity, I loved Jesus. I couldn't believe he saved me. Down the line, I was like, I can't believe you saved me. At first, I was like, yeah, I can't believe you saved me. But I gave Jesus my agenda. Here's God, awesome, you're amazing. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm really doing it for myself. I want to be known. I want to be used so that other people see my greatness. It's all about me. Like, I look back, it still is. Terribly. I literally analyze. I'm like, why am I doing this? Is it still about me? Am I still? I'm like, got Gollum inside me. Just, just comes and just wants the glory. It's like that, ah, I need it. You guys were in the scene in Lord of the Rings where Bilbo, when he's old, he sees the ring and he's, he's old. He's like, oh, can I see it and everything? And he's like, you better not. He's like, give it to me. Oh, no, I... That's me. 
I'm like, oh, Lord, you're working amazing. Give it to me. I'm like, just like, I, I want it. Let's wrap up. But guys, so th this passage is about a king coming and a king not meeting the expectations of the people that he was coming to. And the symbol of freedom is not in the palm frond, but is in the offensive symbol of the cross. Because God would rescue us by losing, by going and dying a death as a criminal. Do you understand? We follow our founder was killed as a criminal and executed. But it changed the world. Because his kingdom is not of this world. That he comes lowly. And so all through, I just, the cruciform life, this cross life, the, that I may be conformed to his death, is a verse that Paul's, put this one on your calendar, is that all of our life, the symbol over all of our life as a Christian, is that cross. It's also the empty tomb. They go hand in hand. You need both. <laughs> you really need both. It's not just all victory and it's not death that ends in defeat, but it is brokenness that leads to resurrection. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What does Jesus say? Do you want to find your life? Then lose it for my sake. Guys, that is the cruciform life. That is the cross. So our symbol, as tempting as it is in this political age, to wave palm fronds and to look for independence, whatever it is that we fear that is happening in this world, I do it. I look to, to tech people. I look to technology. Or I look to this leader. I look to that leader to lead me out of whatever I think think the oppression is today is a reminder that the symbol for Christianity is not the palm frond that overthrows oppression with violence, but is the cross that defeated Satan's sin and death, the giants that we can never defeat once and for all through death and resurrection. Like that is what he calls us into. That's the kingdom that he talks about. That's the, if John even, he's, if, if somebody asks you to go a mile, go two. Not try to weasel out and get out of the mile, do 50 per, or that, I, you can't command me to do that. It says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. We are part of a totally different kingdom than the kingdom of this world and the people were expecting another rescuer another messiah that would come and conquer through violence even his own disciples peter pulls out his sword in the garden and says now it's time now it's time to go to work now it's time to use the sword and jesus says, put that away it's not what my king and he goes as the sacrifice because what did we need at Passover. How was the Exodus? How did it happen? And I end with this. Passover. How did, how was it, was it Moses? What was the real necessary thing? And especially if you were a firstborn child, 
Because do you know the angel went through Israel? He didn't just hit Egypt. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Israel was a special remnant that they didn't need the blood. They just, oh, you're, you're the seed of Abraham. You're good. Oh, you were born in a Christian family. You're good. No, they needed the blood of the innocent covered for them. That was the true rescue that night. And then you know what? God brought them into covenant community with them. And there were miracles along the way. The enemy was defeated. But the rescue that Passover was all about was that judgment was coming. And it was coming in a specific location, in a specific time. And it was falling on that moment. And no one would escape any other way. And I imagine myself being on the first son of my dad. I imagine myself being in that room and what I would feel as from one end of the land you start to hear screaming and you start to hear terror and you start to hear rejoicing and sighs of relief. But dad, there's things I haven't told you. Are you sure? Are you sure I'm going to be saved? Yeah. Because the innocent has died for the guilty. And as the angel comes and sees the blood, that judgment that we all deserve passes over. That's why it's called Passover. It passes over because something has been judged in its place. That is the glory of the gospel, because God doesn't water down his holiness to get you into heaven. He's holy. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his holiness burns bright. It makes rocks tremble. I've used a lot of the heavy equipment. Nothing makes rocks tremble. It makes rocks shake. It makes rocks tremble. It makes creatures that were created to be in His presence, they have to shield their faces with multiple wings because His glory and His holiness burn so bright. And that just whatever passes through, whatever hits their wing, they have to respond, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So that fire fell on as we talked about. The fire did fall, but it fell on him. He said, me for them. Let that come unto me. That's the cup that he drank. That's the, what we're celebrating this week. So I want to hear that scripture again, and I want this to be for us right now. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. O dire daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. You. He left the 99 to get you. For some reason, he hunted high and low for you. He tore up heaven and earth to have you. He likes you thought about you before you were even made. 
he longed for this century to come along. Isn't that crazy? And that page of history, he's like, I can't wait to get to this page because Amber, I get to meet her. She gets to meet me. He, he likes you a lot. Your king is coming to you, and he's rich. And he has salvation. And as we talked about with the helmet of salvation, it's from beginning to end. Behold, your king is coming to you. And he's humble and mounted on a donkey. The uncaused cause, the power full one, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He says, I'm meek and humble of heart. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Guys, you can come to him like boldly before the throne of grace. Like he knows that you're dust. He knows that like in all points what it's like to be tempted. Because he experienced it, but he didn't sin for us. But he knows our frame. He knows our weakness. He's a sympathetic high priest. Who's for us? Anyways, let me finish this verse. We'll be done. Humble and mounted on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall see peace or speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The cross of the king, the new exodus. And then he commissions us as ambassadors to just take the good news to people, which is as difficult as taking really good cold water to somebody who's thirsty. Or taking, have you ever, maybe we'll make some bread sometime. There's nothing better than fresh baked bread that when you crack it, it steams. And what do we get to do to somebody who's so hungry? We get to give them the bread of life. Like we get to be the ambassadors. So the question is today, what's your symbol? Is it a palm frond or is it the cross and the empty tomb? Number two, Jesus is king over all or he's not king at all. Like he doesn't he doesn't mince. He, he says the craziest hard things when I talk to people and they're like, oh, I like Jesus. I say, no, you don't know him then. He's insane. He demands that you worship him and give up everything. He says, your love for him should be so strong that your love for your family looks like hatred in comparison. That's divisive. Exactly. But then you start to come to learn, oh, that's how I actually love my family is when I love him, he loves me. And then I'm not using them and manipulating them. He's brilliant. He's wise. He knows what he's talking about. But he is king. Is he king? Like, again, we don't say, come in, Jesus, stay out, Christ. We take all of them. And when he comes in as king, is he the authority in your life? And who he is, as he's revealed in his word, is that authority? Not what's popular today, not what I feel, not this thing or this movement. Is Jesus my authority? Is he my future? Is he my everything? Like he claims, he literally claims every space on our life. He says, all of it is mine. And then we flourish. 
But that's his claim with us. Jesus the king. Remember, to be part of his kingdom means there's a king in the kingdom. He doesn't need two kings. And we're really bad at being kings. Hence, our testimonies. <laughs> Let me pray for us and just rejoice on this day. Let's pray for celebration today. I love in one of the Gospels, the religious leaders are like, they understood what was happening. They're like, tell your disciples to shut up. They, to tell the crowd to be quiet. Jesus said, if they be quiet, the very stones would cry out. Because this is the day that the Lord has made. Because he's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. This is what it's all culminating to. So we just want to be in that mindset and the flow and the rhythm of this week in that. Let's pray.